welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio En Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu GES, and follow them on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. This week on Radio and Vivo, we visit the Deep Blue Sea, which, as we all know, is literally the lifeblood of our planet. With our environment and our climate in such a state of flux and uncertainty, 
it's become more important than ever to assess the state of health of our oceans and to understand their past, present, and future characteristics. One of the most important of those characteristics is large-scale ocean water circulation, particularly in the, in the Atlantic, where the so-called meridional overturning of the ocean is a vital element in climate and weather worldwide. There's still a great deal to learn about this phenomenon, and I'm excited to welcome one of the world's leading experts on it to our microphones today. Susan Lozier is a physical oceanographer and leads the international project currently engaged in measuring ocean overturning in the North Atlantic, which we will hear about in detail. She is a distinguished professor in the Division of Earth and Ocean Sciences within the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University, where she has been a faculty member since 1992. Susan received her B.S. in Chemical Engineering from Purdue University in 1979, her M.S. in Chemical Engineering from the University of Washington in 1984, and her Ph.D. in Physical Oceanography from the same school in 1989. Susan Lozier, welcome to Radio and Vivo. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Susan, to get us started, I, I have to initially show my ignorance by having you define physical oceanographer for us. Uh, what does that mean? Is there any other kind? Well, there are many kinds of oceanographers. So there are oceanographers who study the life in the ocean. So we refer to those as biological oceanographers. Okay. There are oceanographers who study the seafloor and the beaches. And so those oceanographers are geological oceanographers. And many of those oceanographers are interested in the history, the paleo history of the ocean. And then there are also chemical oceanographers. These oceanographers are interested in the salts, the nutrients, you know, the tracers that that are in the ocean. So, and then the physical oceanographers are the oceanographers who are interested in, you know, quite simply the physics of the ocean. So the ocean circulation, the waves, the tides, all of that. But I will say that traditionally oceanography was separated into those four, um, you know, disciplines, biological, chemical, geological, and physical. Uh, but today, more than ever, oceanography is really a study, you know, across these disciplines. Because as you mentioned in, in your introduction, many of the issues that the oceans um, are facing today really cross all these disciplines. But all that is to say that I do, uh, my main area of focus is on uh, the physics, how the ocean moves, why it moves, where all that water is going. I see. Well, th thank you for that description, because I've already learned something today. All right. Uh, We're off well, to a good start. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, Susan, um, given your original educational orientation in chemical engineering, what drew you to this field? You know, people ask me this a lot. I, um, First of all, when I went into engineering, um, I went into engineering um, at the suggestion of a high school chemistry teacher. So my uh, family situation was such that I was looking for scholarships in order to go on, you know, for, um, for education after, after high school. And at that time, there was a push nationally to get uh, young women into engineering. And there was an um, opportunity to apply for a scholarship for the, from the National uh, Society of Professional Engineers. And so um, at the um, request of my chemistry teacher, I applied for the scholarship and ended up being awarded this and was able to study engineering um, at Purdue University in my home state. And it was a fabulous education. 
Um, I went on after that and worked for a couple years at the DuPont Company um, as a chemical engineer. was very happy to make um, a salary and work in industry for a while, but it was never quite fit. Um, so I went back uh, to graduate school at the University of Washington in chemical engineering, thinking what I needed to do was just get um, um, a, a PhD in engineering for it to all fit together. But while I was studying my um, graduate education in chemical engineering, I was taking applied mathematics courses. And the professor at that time was giving all these examples in mathematics of how these mathematical equations applied to ocean flow. Um, and I realized that I could study uh, the fluid dynamics, which is part of chemical engineering. I realized that I could study flow through an ocean in an ocean rather than flow through a pipe. And so I made the switch. I took a class. Um, I was very fortunate that at University of Washington, they have one of the really strongest oceanography programs in the country. So I took a class down there and just fell all in because being from um, the Hoosier State in Indiana, I never really understood that you could use math and physics, you know, to study um, the ocean. And so I finished a master's in chemical engineering and went into the PhD program and used what I knew about fluid dynamics, et cetera, to study the deep blue sea, as you mentioned in your introduction. Yeah, indeed. So you, so you really found yourself at that point. I did, yeah. yes. Yeah, it sounds a little bit of like a cliche. Uh, but not it, at all. Yeah, I just fell into it then, and it, it really... Um, been very motivated by it and inspired by it from the beginning. Well, that's wonderful. It's, uh, I wonder if growing up in the middle part of the country where there are no oceans really had something to do with it. You know, there are a lot of oceanographers who come from the Midwest and everybody has, has different stories. But I would say that either it was the time or place I just wasn't exposed um, to oceanography as, as a career. I was much sure. more practical-minded at that at those years. There you go. Well, Susan, what exactly is this meridional? And I knew I was going to butcher that You're word. You're very close, Ernie. Yeah, meridional. Meridional. Okay, meridional. thank you. Yeah. Uh, overturning of the oceans. What, what exactly is that? So the meridional overturning of the oceans um, is the large-scale movement of the oceans that involves the surface waters being transformed into deep waters. So most of us understand uh, the surface ocean circulation, and I think most everybody uh, would recognize it when I say that the surface ocean is primarily driven by the winds. And those winds um, drive the ocean in gyres, which means sort of around in circles because the ocean currents are blocked, you know, by the continental boundaries. So um, actually for centuries, people uh, charted these currents, these wind, these wind-driven currents. But the overturning circulation is something that's happening, I'm going to say, on top of that. The overturning circulation is the movement, I'm going to talk about the North Atlantic in particular, sure. is the movement of warm surface waters um, to the near poles. And that slow northward movement uh, takes these waters up to the higher latitudes, the colder latitudes. And there they're exposed to very cold air. And when that cold air comes in contact with these warm waters that have moved uh, to the near polar latitudes, uh, the ocean loses a lot of heat, uh, loses a lot of heat to the atmosphere. And that means then that those surface waters become more dense, right? Colder water is more dense. Mm -hmm. And so that means that the surface waters are denser or heavier than the waters below them. And so they sink. So there is what we call um, a mixing or an overturning locally where those surface waters are carried down to depth. 
And when those waters then are carried down to depth, they are denser uh, because they've been cooled, been made very dense at the surface. They're denser than the waters that are equatorward. So they start slowly spreading equatorward. So you see you have this sort of upper limb circulation where in the uh, near surface, warm waters are being carried poleward. There's a transformation of those waters. And then at depth, the waters are being carried um, equatorward. So you can think sort of of a, um, a cell, um, an overturning, where the waters are transformed from surface to deep waters. They flow. And then, of course, at the other end, those waters have to upwell somewhere to become part of the surface limb. So this is the, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, or AMOC. It is. And that's really the focus of your research, right? It is. But it is also, the reason it's the focus is because um, those deep waters that are formed in the Atlantic form about 90% of the deep water that's found across the globe. So you can go down to the South Atlantic if you were on a ship, uh, down in the South Atlantic, you put instruments overboard, and you started measuring the temperature and salinity properties of the water. Um, near the surface, you would measure waters that you knew, understood, came from the South Atlantic. But as you went further, you could find waters that originated in the North Atlantic. You can go down near Antarctica in the deep. You can find waters that originate uh, near in the North Atlantic and also in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So 90% of those waters were actually formed in the North Atlantic. So there are overturning circulations in other basins, but for reasons of how the oceans and the land masses are configured, uh, most of that um, deep water is formed in the North Atlantic, and that's why I'm, I'm interested in the North Atlantic. Sure. Well, so this is, is really what, what you term the Atlantic conveyor belt as an, an image to help us understand it. Well, what is that, and why is it so very important? So what I would like to do now is take you back to 1800, if that's okay with you to, take, to go back. Yeah, actually, absolutely. Actually, I'm going to go back to 1751 okay, with, with this do. story to tell you why it's so important. Okay. Um, so going back to 1751, I um, want to tell you that at that time, uh, mariners were busy taking uh, measurements of the surface waters. Um, in fact, Benjamin Franklin, our postmaster general of the colonies, uh, was one of those and was trying to chart out the Gulf Stream. Um, and so there was a Reverend Stephen Hales over in England who was well aware of these efforts that were being made to map the surface temperatures. But he was very curious about the temperatures of the deep ocean. Now, at that time in 1751, hardly anybody knew anything about the deep ocean, and it was pretty much assumed that it was still, dark, void of life, um, you know, not moving at all. And so he was just curious about those deep temperatures. And so he asked um, a Captain Henry Ellis, who was the captain of a British slave trader between the colonies and, the, um, and West Africa, asked this Captain Henry Ellis if he would stop on one of his voyages and take measurements of the deep ocean. And so Captain uh, Ellis did so. In a letter back to Reverend Stephen Hales, he um, talks about how they stopped in the torrid zone, which is in the, in the tropics, and they took a wooden bucket and they fitted that wooden bucket. They cut out the bottom of the wooden bucket and they fitted the top and bottom with valves such that when they lowered the bucket with a rope over the side of the, of the, of the ship, uh, the valves would open. But when they pulled up on that rope to pull the bucket back up to the ship, the valves would close so they would trap water mm -hmm. um, at different depths. 
And so in this letter back uh, to Reverend Stephen Hales, Captain Ellis writes that uh, the temperature of the water on the um, at the surface was 83 degrees, and he said that he um, lowered the bucket over the side, pulled it up, and he said he used a small thermometer of Mr. Fahrenheit's made by Mr. Bird and found that the surface temperature was 83 degrees Fahrenheit, which matched the air temperature at the time, which was also 83 degrees Fahrenheit. And then what Captain Ellis and his crew did is they kept um, making successive draws. They kept going down further and further, and in his letter he describes how the temperature decreased proportional to depth until they reached a depth, he wrote it in fathoms, and I don't remember what it was in fathoms, but it's about a thousand meters. Okay. When they reached that depth, the temperature stayed the same. It was very cold, te- cold water, and though they kept lowering it, lowering it, the temperature went didn't go any further. Um, and so he described what is today is called uh, the very first um, temperature profile. It's what he described was the temperature thermocline. The surface waters are very warm, they decrease quickly, and then at a certain depth, they stay the same. So at the end of the letter, um, it was very interesting because Henry Ellis, at the end, almost as a postscript, wrote back to Reverend Hales and he said, well, I hope this is of some interest to you scientifically, he said, because we don't really can't make out anything of scientific interest on our part, but we're very happy to have found a source of cool water to cool our baths and wines in this vastly disagreeable weather. So... They were, they were happy for that um, discovery, even though they didn't know what it meant scientifically. So that letter went back to Reverend Hales. He forwarded it to the Royal Society in, 1800, in at that time, in 1751. And it sort of sat there until 1800 when Count Rumford came along. Okay. And if anybody knows anything about Count Rumford, Count Rumford <laughs> is who we credit a lot with um, studies of heat convection, really how heat moved from one place to the other. And so when Count Rumford uh, looked at those measurements, he was, um, was very confused because, or I should say he was puzzled, because he couldn't understand how the temperatures of the, of the deep ocean, and I should have mentioned that those temperatures that they recorded were 53 degrees Fahrenheit, though they suspected they were much colder because as they brought the bucket back up, the waters leaked in. Yeah, right. sure. yeah. Um, so actually they were pretty astute to even think about that. So Count Rumford was puzzled how the deep waters in the torrid zone could be so cold because they were colder than the winter temperatures were or colder than the temperatures were at night. And if you recall what I said earlier, at that time everybody thought all the properties of the deep ocean would just sort of be what we have you know, from, from the surface. And so after puzzling on this, uh, Count Rumford, with just that one uh, temperature profile, he surmised that the waters at high latitude at surface uh, must sink and carry that cold with them and then travel at depth to the torrid zones or to the tropics uh, in order for those waters to be so cold. And he said, if that's the case, there has to be a return current at the surface. And so getting to why it's important, Count Rumford realized then in 1800 that essentially what um, this ocean overturning is doing is that it is exchanging heat between the high latitudes and the low latitudes. So uh, what people may not realize is that without the planetary fluids, so that's the atmosphere and the ocean, mm-hmm. without those planetary fluids, the our Earth, our planet Earth, would have a temperature difference of 110 degrees Celsius between the equator and the poles. Wow. <laughs> and instead, it's not 110 degrees, it's 30 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So the ocean and the atmosphere are constantly taking heat from the equator 
you know, up up to the poles, there's that exchange, and we have a much more habitable planet because of that. So physical oceanographers like me are very interested in just the water itself and where it's going. But the water's carrying heat, and that's why it's really of, uh, important, and it has, has a lot of impact then on regional global, global climate as well. Absolutely. Well, Susan, I understand that the, the current state of the Atlantic, particularly in, in our general neck of the woods, is that the surface water is warming, which has led to some major impacts on fisheries uh, in the Northeast. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can certainly. I don't uh, know a lot about the individual impacts, you know, on the fisheries. I can talk to you about, certainly about uh, the warming. Sure. Uh, but the global oceans in general have, um, have, been, have risen in temperature. And in fact, the 90% of the um, heat that's been produced for the planet, 90% of that heat is actually in the ocean compared to in the atmosphere. So that might give people an idea of that of that partitioning. Now, the ocean has a huge heat capacity, so taking up that heat hasn't, uh, you know, has, has uh, resulted in a temperature increase of about 0.8 degrees Celsius or one degree Celsius over 100 years. But and that may not sound a lot, you know, to the listeners, but it does impact, you know, the uh, the marine ecosystems and, and in particular. Uh, in particular, the fisheries. Mm-hmm. So my colleagues who do, you know, study um, the fisheries, you know, are looking at what the impact of the heating is. And that number I gave you, 0.8 to 1 degree, is a global average. And certainly some places there are larger increases than others. I see. Uh, well, just in the course of my research, I did come across that um, the, the, this is involved with the crash of the cod fishery uh, in the New England area, and that the the lobster catch is in record numbers in Maine, but plummeting south of Cape Cod. Yeah, so it's it's in- interesting. Yeah, that it that is that is very interesting. Yeah. I will say one small caveat here is that one thing that has been difficult to understand the direct climate impact on fisheries is because for years the main human impact on fisheries was one which was direct, which was overfishing. Sure. And so um, trying to tease apart how much of those stocks have been depleted because of climate impacts compared to the overfishing directly has been difficult. But I think those are clever people working uh, in the fisheries oceanography, and they're, they're figuring it out. Indeed. Well, Susan, what, what tools do you and your contemporary colleagues, we've, we've talked about the historical colleagues, uh, what do you use today to measure AMOC? I assume you've come a long way from uh, sinking those wooden buckets. Right. We, d- we no longer use wooden buckets okay. and small thermometers. Yeah, maybe, by, maybe Mr. Fahrenheit. In fact, um, the ocean um, technology has really increased, I'm going to say, over the past 20 years. So when I started in this, I got my Ph.D. in 1989. In large part, oceanographers were still going on ships, um, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but, you know, making steady progress across, you know, the oceans, dropping instruments in, measuring things, pulling, you know, those instruments up. Or... There were also at that t- time we could moor instruments, you know, from the, from the ships, um, and they could be there in place for two years. We'd come back later, you know, and, and pull them up. 
But, you know, past, well, a huge impact has been starting in the late 70s on into the 80s and 90s when we've been able to observe the ocean from space. So satellite oceanography really broke open um, a wide area, you know, in oceanography because for the first time we could see the whole surface of the ocean um, and we could see that, you know, every day or every 10 days depending on the satellite pass and whether we were interested in sea surface temperature or sea surface height. Now, the for the ocean, though, that um, any measure from space can only tell us about the upper centimeters of the ocean. So we still, um, the satellites can't give any information about what's happening below. So we still need to rely on what are called in situ or in place instruments. Sure. But starting in the 80s, we um, started coming up with um, autonomous um vehicles, freely floating, etc. So I'm going to give you an example of one that's really revolutionized uh, the field. And then I'll talk to you in particular about the ones that are measuring the overturning circulation because the program I'm going to talk about now and the instrument I'm going to talk about now is one that's really uh, primarily involved in measuring the heat content of the ocean. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is called the Argo program. And the, uh, I'll tell you what an Argo float is. An Argo float um, is an instrument that's about four feet in length and maybe about eight to ten inches in diameter. And it has lots of instrumentation packed inside. And it is deployed over the side of a ship. And it is uh, designed to um, sink down to what's called a parking depth. And that parking depth is about 1,500 meters, let's say, in the, uh, in the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And then it is programmed every ten days to rise slowly up to the surface. And as it's going up to the surface, it's measuring its temperature and its salinity and its pressure. And then when it gets to the surface, it can relay its information to a passing satellite. It says, here's the temperature, here's the profile, all these steps, and then it goes slowly back down, also measuring its temperature and salinity, Mm -hmm. waits for another 10 days, and makes another profile. So essentially, it's repeating the profile that... um, Henry Ellis did, you know, in 1751. Sure. But it's joined by about 3,400 other Argo floats. So there are, I think there's now 37 countries across the globe that are participating in this program. And if you look at a map at the distribution of these Argo drifters, you will see that in almost, you know, every single part of the ocean, it's filled with these Argo drifters. When I say filled, it's, you know, you're not going to be, like, able to walk across the ocean by stepping on these Argo floats. Um, But these, I should say about 50% of the contribution is from the U.S., but there still are about 37 countries, you know, contributing. And these Argo, uh, this Argo program has been going on for about 20 years, full coverage maybe for about 15 years. But this is, this program has really made a huge difference because now we have uh, global coverage of our upper ocean, 1,500 meters, um, and we really are understanding the extent to which the heat content is changing, where it's changing, how rapidly it's changing, and that data is available in real time. So that's also very different than what than what we had before. Yeah. So it's really it's been a remarkable program, and it, it's available to anybody. You can go to the Argo site, you can download the data, and so it, you know, years ago, decades ago, somebody would go out on a ship, collect data, and then they had that data. Right. But now they really. Um, are international um, sites where data is collected and shared. So many more people looking, gathering, you know, and, and also looking at the data. 
So. Well, it strikes me that uh, with all of those Argo floats uh, worldwide deployed, mm-hmm. uh, they must be generating an enormous amount of data. Uh, how do you handle all of that? Uh, how do you process it to uh, elicit a, a signal from what must be a great deal of noise? There's Yes, um, there is a great deal of noise. However, the, the climate signals also give us a strong, a strong signal as well. But you're absolutely right. I'm sure you've had um, visitors on this program before that have talked about big data. Oh, yeah. Yes, and so... <laughs> Absolutely, not just with the Argo data, but with the satellite data as well. And so oceanographers today um, need to know a lot about handling large data sets, analyzing you know, large data sets, and that's a really large part of our graduate education today. It's mm-hmm. quite different than it was you know, several decades ago. The focus was more on the mathematics, the physics, you know, the classes. That's still there. You need to understand those right. um, those elements, you know, of the science, but understanding um, how to access, to read, and analyze large data sets is a huge part of our science today. Very interesting. Well, Susan, now that we've kind of established a, a conceptual baseline, let's introduce the major international research project that you lead called OSNAP. Uh, to begin with, tell us what OSNAP stands for and the broad outlines of the program. So OSNAP is overturning in the subpolar North Atlantic program. So it has its uh, origins, I think it goes back about mm, eight or nine years ago. Now, I mentioned that the Argo float program is measuring the temperature and salinity. But the knowing the properties alone doesn't tell us about the circulation of the ocean. So I'm going to take you back now, not as far as 1751. We're going to take you back to the 1990s, So, which we... Can, many of us can remember. <laughs> so um, this overturning circulation that I described earlier was really studied primarily by paleoceanographers back in the 80s and 90s. Um, they would explain millennial scale changes in the climate because of these changes in the overturning circulation. So the earth would go through these warm and cold periods on very long time scales, and it was explained in terms of more or less deep water was formed at those very high high latitudes. And so if more was formed, the assumption was that the overturning circulation would increase, or if less was formed, the overturning circulation would slow. Mm -hmm. But in the 1990s, there was a study by a paleoclimatologist named Richard Alley at Penn State. And in his analysis of ice core records from both Greenland and from uh, Antarctica, He suggested that the uh, changes in atmospheric temperature caused by changes in the overturning circulation happened on timescales of years to decades. Very short timescales. Very short timescale. And so suddenly, physical oceanographers like me, you know, who are interested in the modern climate, sort of sat up and took notice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember at the time, Ernie, but there was uh, the buzzwords in the climate community were abrupt climate change. There was a concern about abrupt climate change. Sure. In fact, there was a Hollywood movie a few years after that called The Day After Tomorrow. Right. right. A little outlandish. (laughs) But everything there was on Hollywood, Hollywood time, not necessarily geologic time. But that really did start a push. This concern that the overturning circulation was operating on modern climate timescales created a big push on both sides of the Atlantic, on the European side and the, and the North American side, to learn more about the ocean circulation. 
you know, at that point, physical oceanographers were not focused on the overturning circulation. The time scales were too slow. And so the uh, first program was put together between the U.S. and the U.K. to study the overturning circulation at 26 degrees north in the North Atlantic, and that's called the Rapid Array because they were going to study about rapid climate change. And that's the part of the ocean that we call the subtropical North Atlantic. So um, off the coast of Florida, if you go all the way across into the Atlantic. Um, after a few years of measuring there at 26 degrees north, it became apparent, though, that from some modeling studies, that what was being measured there was not the same as the overturning circulation that we would measure at the very high latitudes where this deep water mass formation that I described earlier would, would occur. Mm-hmm. It was more apparent that was ha- what was happening in the subtropical ocean, the overturning circulation was being impacted by winds. So starting around 2008 or 2009, uh, colleagues and I decided to put together an international uh, collaboration to go right up to the subpolar North Atlantic uh, where these deep water masses are formed. And when I say these deep water masses, that's where I'm saying that we have surface water that's transformed to deep water. Um, and I just, if you don't mind, if you uh, can indulge me for a moment, I just sure, want to step back a little bit and tell another another story. Please do. Um, and this is about uh, a 19th century uh, naval officer, U.S. naval officer named Matthew Fontaine Murray. And even then, he realized that the Gulf Stream waters, a portion of the Gulf Stream waters, um, were carried northward in the North Atlantic, past the British Isles, on you know further north. Um, and he attributed those waters then, or uh, uh, credited those waters with making uh, the British Isles in Northern Europe more habitable than comparable latitudes over in Canada, in Labrador. Mm-hmm. And so I'm mentioning that to sort of give your listeners a, um, an example of how that heat carried by the upper limb, the surface waters of the um, overturning circulation, make a difference. And so the westerly winds, you know, coming off America, blow over these warm extension of the Gulf Stream. They pick up heat and water and dump all that on the British Isles and northern Europe. So those warm waters as part of that um, overturning circulation were noted not just by Rumford, but also um, noted by Matthew uh, Fontaine uh, Murray as well. So that um, why we wanted to go to the subpolar North Atlantic was because it was there, those warm waters were being delivered and then transformed into the cold waters. Um, and so that, that was the motivation. So um, when we look ahead, like when the climate modelers run their models out, um, the expectation is that with climate change, if high latitude waters warm, continue to warm, and they can and they get fresher because they um, because of ice melt, glacial runoff. Mm-hmm. Those surface waters will get less dense, right? Because they're warmer and they're fresher. And if they're less dense, then that means that they will be harder to to mix or harder to sink. Sure. So the expectation is that the overturning will slow. So we wanted to test that idea. So we mm-hmm. needed to go up to those high latitudes. And so this is the Labrador or the Erminger. Or I the understand Isen there's Basin. even some concern that the overturning could just stop altogether. 
Yes, so I would say back back in the day, back in the 90s and the early part of the 2000s when there was a major concern about the abrupt climate change, there were a lot of modeling studies that talked about the cessation or the shutting off of the conveyor belt. You know, today with improved models and with more observations, uh, it's considered a very low chance that there would be a complete cessation of of the overturning circulation. I feel much better now. Good. Actually, everybody (laughs) should feel much better. I think it's even, you know, the over this century, um, you know, the ensemble, the models predict that the overturning might slow on the order of 20 to 30 percent. I see. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more about the the program and the kind of results you've been getting. Yeah. What I I want to tell you is one other motivation, because we have focused primarily on the heat. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but a huge motivation for OSNOP also comes from uh, understanding the ocean's uptake of carbon. Oh, sure. So um, when I was in graduate school, the catchphrase among climate scientists was, where has all the carbon gone? And the reason is because there were two estimates. One was the estimate of the carbon dioxide released uh, because of the fossil fuel burning since the Industrial Revolution. So let's say that was X amount of carbon. And the other estimate was how much carbon was currently anthropogenic carbon, meaning carbon that's produced by you know, man's burning of fossil fuel, how much was actually in the atmosphere, and let's call that Y. So X, the amount produced, was much greater than Y. And so, hence the question, where is all the carbon gone? So in some ways, the race was on. Uh, the race was on for those in the terrestrial domain, terrestrial ecologists, to see if, is it possible that uh, there, the plants... Uh, uh, have become more productive, have taken up more carbon dioxide, and at the same time, the oceanographers started looking in the ocean. So starting in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a big push to look at the um, amount of carbon dioxide in the ocean, and we now have an estimate that 35% of the carbon dioxide that's been released in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution is in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Wow. And half of that is in the deep ocean. So I always tell people, well, this is good news and this is bad news. You know, the good news part is that that carbon dioxide is not in the atmosphere. Sure. Yeah, but the bad news but. is that it's, yeah, it's in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and Which leads to? Uh, ocean acidification, mm-hmm. yes. And I'll, I'll get to that in just okay. a moment. Because, <laughs> well, the, um, the, in the deep ocean, it's where it's in the deep ocean is in the North Atlantic. And so not surprisingly, that is the overturning circulation. Because if you, if something's in the surface of the ocean, so uh, during the 50s and 60s, uh, tritium, which is helium-3, uh, an isotope of, of, of hydrogen, was um, re, um, put into the atmosphere as a byproduct of the nuclear bomb testing that the Russians, or Soviets, and the U.S. Uh, were conducting. And that uh, helium-3 showed up in the deep ocean and, you know, and so anything that's going in the surface of the ocean is eventually going to find its way down to depth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can see now signatures of this anthropogenic CO2 down to 4,000 meters in the North Atlantic. And so why we are very motivated to try to understand this overturning circulation is, yes, because of the heat carried in that upper limb. And if there are disruptions to that, it's going to impact the climate. But also if the overturning changes, let's say that it slows then the deep ocean no longer is a reservoir for the carbon dioxide. So where, what happens to that carbon dioxide? So both of those questions are really motivating a study of the overturning circulation. So even though I said it's um, 
bad news for the ocean to be a carbon re- uh, reservoir. It's um, it is currently a reservoir, and so if it's if the overturning slows, that means that carbon dioxide will stay in the atmosphere. Now, this is of course bad news, meaning that it leads to ocean acidification. Now we've had far fewer measures of the ocean pH than we have had of the temperature and salinity. Um, and we really only have reliable measures of it since 1989 or 1990. And so you probably are familiar with the record of atmospheric CO2 from the uh, Mauna Loa in Hawaii. And that's the record they've been taking since 1959 that have shown the strong increase uh, in the atmospheric CO2. Well, there is an ocean time series there that has recorded since 1989 a decrease of pH and that decrease of pH is estimated to be 0.1. You have to remember that it's on a, a log on a log scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are, uh, in addition to this Argo program that I uh, discussed b- b- uh, before, there is an international effort to have a global network of uh, pH sensors. And so many countries are currently contributing uh, to that. And our no- National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, is involved in that effort. It's a very nascent effort, but it's a very critical effort to understanding the impact of the acidification on marine ecosystems. I see, and, and that is certainly uh, extremely important uh, for ecosystems and for overall climate change, I'm sure. It is, yeah, yeah. the carbon. That's what This gets back to where I said it's really, um, this question really becomes one of uh, interdisciplinary oceanography, sure, right? Sure. Because the chemical oceanographers are the one that really understand about the carbon uptake, but then the physical oceanographers understand where that carbon's being is going. The biological oceanographers are trying to understand the the impact of that ocean acidification on the marine ecosystems. I see. Well, Susan, um, you recently shared the first set of results from the OSNAP program. Uh, at the American Geophysical Union's Ocean Sciences meeting in February. Those first findings were measurements of the AMOC from 2014 through 2016. Tell us a little bit about what you found so far. It must be really exciting to get that that first uh, set of results. Yeah, you're right. It is It is very exciting. I don't know if I can recreate the feeling that Henry Ellis had um, pulling up that, that bucket with that measurement. But it was since I had really been uh, thinking about this since 2007 or 2008 and really planning in earnest since 2009, it was very exciting. Um, and the results are over a 21-month period. The instruments are all still in place so soon. In fact, this summer, in fact, I just one of my colleagues is out on a ship now okay. retrieving uh, data. So we are sure. soon going to have another, another two years. But what we have found... Um, is something that's really going to shift our understanding about the overturning circulation. So when I said that those deep waters are formed at high latitudes, um, these high latitudes are uh, these sets of basins. It's the Labrador Basin that's sitting there between the Labrador Coast in Canada and Greenland. We have the Erminger Basin sitting there between Greenland and Iceland, and then the Iceland Basin between Iceland um, and, uh, and Scotland. And then, of course, we have what even further north Norwegian Greenland seas. So it matters to us a great deal where the deep water is formed. It matters because uh, we care then about how the surface properties of that water are changing because if the deep water is being formed there and being sent equatorward, we want to understand the changes there. So 
the focus over the past 20 or 30 years has been in the Labrador Sea. Um, and it's been in the Labrador Sea in large part uh, because a lot of the modeling studies have told us this is where the majority of this deep water is being formed. Mm-hmm. Um, but our first measurements, so before this point, not, the overturning circulation had never been measured in the subpolar North Atlantic. We just measured properties, temperature, and salinity, and out we only had the models uh, to tell us. And the first results showed us that the overturning is actually very little that's happening in the Labrador Sea. Instead, the overturning is happening in the eastern part of the basin, more toward the Iceland Basin and up into the Norwegian Greenland Sea. So it may not mean that much to your listeners, but for those of us who want to understand how the overturning works, whether it will change, how it will change in time, it's very important for us to know where these waters are are transformed. It's also very important to the modelers. I would say that my modeling colleagues have been as... uh, eager to get their hands on these new results as, as I have. And so that's the other thing that oceanographers uh, with observationalists and modelers are really working hand in hand to try to get better estimates well, of everything about the ocean, but in particular about the overturning circulation. It sounds like those results were, were actually quite surprising. They were surprising. Yes. In fact, I'm just writing them up now and I was working on a title this morning and I was, I was, I have surprising right now in the title. Okay, good. <laughs> One of my colleagues suggested that I use revolution in the title, but I think that's a little strong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's for those of us in the field, it is to have observations sort of give a, a shift in the understanding is very exciting. The, you know, oceanographers, um, there are many oceanographers, you know, something that's very exciting about being uh, an oceanographer is that the oceans are still largely unexplored. You know, so I, I, I mean, we are learning more with this uh, revolution in ocean technology, but there's still a lot that 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 we need to know, particularly the deep ocean. So it's it's a fascinating field to be in. How will this influx of new data uh, serve to improve climate models? Yeah, that, and that is that is one of the main. Uh, motivations for doing this because the climate models then, you know, we can't fast forward our real ocean in, in you know, in time, yeah. but certainly we're interested in prediction. And so what they're going to be able to do is they're going to be able to validate their models with these observations. And they also use what's called data assimilation, where they take these observations and basically correct their models, mm-hmm. velocity fields, property fields, you know, as, as they're moving along. So we are, yes, working, you know, in tandem, you know, with modelers to improve these climate models. And so I mentioned that the climate models predict um, a decrease in the overturning circulation over the century of 20 to 30 percent. But what I didn't mention is that the models are, I'm going to say, all over the place. You know, there's very uh, uh, strong disagreement. You know, some might say it's going to hold steady. Some might say there's a 50 percent decline. So we're trying to get the models to converge, and one of the ways that we can do that is by having more observations. Yeah, absolutely. D- data means everything, right? Data means everything, uh, yeah. And you are just getting ready to actually publish uh, from the first yes. set of data? Yeah, the first set of data. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, it strike, struck me reading about this that you must have some very tough equipment out there that's, you know, out there in these turbulent waters for lengths of time. You are exactly right. I mean, one of the reasons the ocean has been so um, undersampled is because it's a very corrosive environment, and it's also high-pressure, you know, environments, uh, very inaccessible. 
So, um, you know, over these past decades, as I've mentioned, though, though, and it's very expensive equipment, too, you know. Um, so, but now, you know, the Argo program, the, uh, we're putting down um, moorings that can withstand, you know, these pressures and these, these high salinities. There's also in our program, OSNAP program, there are gliders. So the, um, the gliders are similar to Argo, except instead of just going up and down, they actually can be programmed to glide, to basically swim. And what's really interesting about these gliders is when they come to the surface, um, there's two-way communication. So Argo floats, when they come to the, to the surface, they relay what they've seen to the satellite, then they just keep going on their programmed track. Mm-hmm. But when these gliders come to the surface, they say, this is what I've seen, and then they get instructions about where to go next. And so you can be sitting in a coffee shop, having a latte at your laptop, <laughs> and get your, get your, uh, the data, you know, from, from the gliders. But they, you know, the improvement in materials, um, yeah, it's been amazing. So another field I didn't mention is ocean engineering. Okay, sure. Yeah, and yeah. so ocean engineering um, has really made a difference in terms of instrumentation. Well, Susan, as, as exciting as all of this is, and as much as obviously you've learned just from this influx of data, what, what is still missing? What do you hope to learn from the next data collection, which I believe you mentioned is happening this coming summer? Yes, so we have a 21-month record, and uh, what we've seen over that 21-month record is that the overturning circulation, the strength of it, uh, from one month to the next can change almost threefold, so very strong variability. And so in order to get an, uh, an understanding of how things are changing, let's say from one year to the next, we need more months. So basically we need you know, more samples to calculate a stable mean. So we want um, a longer time series. And then we also want to really um, study whether there is a direct link between the um, local overturning, like how much deep water is formed, and then the strength of that very large scale overturning. So there are a number of um, yeah, scientific questions that we sort of really want to sink, sink our teeth into. So to speak. <laughs> so to speak, yes. Yeah, so to speak. And also just uh, we're working with some chemical oceanographers to try to get them interested in making some uh, more carbon measurements. Absolutely. You are listening to Radio En Vivo, and my guest today is physical oceanographer Dr. Susan Lozier from Duke University. Susan, we just have a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, the hour goes by goes quite quickly. quickly. Yes. Uh, but I'd like to spend much of our remaining time together uh, looking at some of the broader implications of sure. your work, which you've you've kind of touched on. But let's let's focus on that a little bit. Uh, the impact of your findings on climate change, weather, and our overall understanding of ocean water overturning. Yeah, so I think a question um, addressing, actually everybody in the global society, is to what extent will our global climate change? I think everybody understands that question has an impact on agriculture, has an impact on infrastructure for coastal societies, has has an impact on national security. Um, and 
there are many unknowns about how our climate will change in the decades ahead. A lot of it has to do with policies in the different countries, has to do with demographics, has to do with how we continue or don't continue to use you know, uh, fossil fuels. But on the scientific side, one of the, uh, the, some of the uncertainty has to do with our, what we don't know about the ocean. So we don't know the extent the ocean will continue to be a carbon, whether the ocean will continue to be a carbon and heat reservoir. So the extent to which we can understand more about the ocean and improve the predictions there, we think that the climate models will have much better predictions of what climate we can expect globally in the decades ahead and certainly by the end of this century. So when I look overall, I think that those of us who are studying uh, the ocean circulation, its role in climate, are really working to try to improve our predictions of what the climate will look like in the next decades, which will help with planning uh, tremendously. Sure. Well, tell us a little bit more about the, the effect that you and your colleagues have seen in terms of the weakening of the Atlantic Ocean overturning. And, so, and why should we care? Right. So we so in our OSNAP measurements, we have not seen a weakening. So we just have oh, twenty. Really? Okay. We just have twenty one months. Sure. Right. So we've sort yeah. of seen uh, the shift that I talked about. Surprising was sort of where the overturning was taking place. Uh-huh. Now, okay. the um, weakening at twenty six degrees north is is fairly slight, and the oceanographers who are working on that say they don't know if it's part of a long term trend or part of this. Uh, variability from year to year, decade to decade. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, uh, oceanographers understand that um, we have to have time series over some period of time in order to clear the signal that we're looking for mm-hmm. from sort of the ba- the background variability. Will that next set of data? That uh, next set of data will certainly help. help. Yeah, it'll get us to where we want to go. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, I wanted to ask you, is the apparent rise in sea levels uh, on the east coast of the U.S., uh, due to potentially due to a weakening circ- circulation, or are they? Is there any correlation? Well, there? The, the main impact of the of those sea level rise is the warming of the oceans, and so that's what we call thermal expansion. So as the oceans warm, they get less dense; they take up more volume. So that is something that's happening globally. So the sea level rise primarily is due to the thermal expansion, and increasingly, though, there's a contribution from the, the ice melt, the glacial melt. Um, so those are what's primarily contributing uh, to the sea level rise. I see. Um, are, are you alarmed about any of the trends at this point, particularly? Oh, I think, I think everybody should. You mean in the overturning circulation or sea level rise? Oh. Uh, I can take my pick. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think everybody should be concerned about sea level rise. Yeah. Um, I think everybody should be concerned about the ocean acidification. And I think we should be less alarmed. Um, well, I, I would say concerned about changes to the overturning circulation. It's just that we, it's very apparent that we have sea level rise. We're now seeing the start of ocean acidification. We don't yet know, you know, the models tell us we can, we can expect the change in the overturning circulation, but we're still at the point where we're trying to understand that from an observational point of view. So I think there should be concern, but I, I wouldn't say panic. There was a recent Mother Jones article where it said something like it's time to freak out about <laughs> the, I would, I would say no. Okay, but good. But all of these things, though, have a common, you know, um, 
I'm going to say, a common cause, which is the increase in the CO2. So taking care of that issue, no small small issue to take care of, but taking care of that um, is something that should be addressed to take care of. There's a lot of downstream impacts of that is what I'm saying. Well, it's it's certainly reassuring to know that there are scientists like you and your colleagues looking at these issues and studying them carefully and giving us some, some real information. Thank you, Ernie. Now, well, Susan, it's been a fascinating hour, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Radio In Vivo. Keep up the good work and help us to learn more about our oceans which seem more threatened than ever. Thank you, Ernie. It's been a pleasure. We've got some terrific guests lined up in the coming weeks on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.